as we uh, consider your word this morning, uh, we pray that you will humble us. Uh, we pray that you will help us to uh, appreciate once again uh, the wonderful things that you've done for us uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross, uh, and who was raised, exalted, uh, and vindicated. Uh, give us ears to hear uh, what you say to your church, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Isaiah. He was a prophet. Uh, Isaiah wrote in the 7th century before Christ. And he wrote, In the years before God's people, Judah, were sent into exile from the land that God gave their ancestors. And this exile was a punishment for their rebellion against God. God had warned them again and again and again that if they refused to obey Him, He would kick them out of the land that He'd given them. And they would no longer be God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule. When Isaiah wrote this book, Israel was only a century away from that exile. But he was a prophet. And he spoke not only to the situation of his day, but also to the situation of the future. He wrote words that would speak to the people who would be in the exile, far away from the promised land. He spoke words that would speak to the people of the time of Jesus, when the people of Israel were back in the land, but they hadn't yet seen the coming of the kingdom of God. And so, and so spiritually the exile was still on. And he wrote words that speak to us, as we look back and, and see how all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One of the things that Isaiah prophesied was the coming of someone called a servant. And his prophecies about the servant are concentrated in four pieces of poetry which are part of his writings. And we call these the servant songs and, and we're looking at one of them each week in the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And you might remember if you were here two weeks ago, uh, Tim uh, helped us look at the first servant song where the servant was introduced. There in Isaiah 42, uh, we saw that he would bring justice to the nations. And yet we saw that he would do it in gentleness and meekness, not by violence and revolution. And we saw how Jesus fulfilled that. And last week we saw how the servant is both Israel and the one who restores Israel. In fact, his first job would be to, to bring Israel back to God. But that wouldn't be his only job. Because we saw that the, the sin of Israel was just a, a small reflection of the sin of the world. And the exile of Israel from the promised land was, was a miniature picture of the exile of humanity from the Garden of Eden, where once we were in perfect relationship with God and, and each other and the, and the world around us. And Israel's need for redemption was a picture of the need of humanity for redemption. The need to be saved, to be rescued from the uh, consequences of sin. And so we saw that the servant would be not only to restore Israel, but to be a light for the nations, to bring the Gentiles to God. He would rescue not only Israel, but humanity. People from every tribe and language and nation. And we saw how Jesus fulfilled that. This week, we come to the third servant song. It was actually in verses 4 to 9 of Isaiah 50. But before we come to that, we're going to have a quick look at the verses beforehand to, to get a context for this passage. So we'll read from verse 1, where God tells Israel that he hasn't really repudiated them. He hasn't, he hasn't put them away permanently. The exile they're facing is not final. 
verse 1 of Isaiah 50. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? You see, if God had divorced the Israelites, then there would be no turning back. If he had sold them to his creditors, it's a, it's a ridiculous thought, isn't it, that God would have creditors? But, but if he had sold them to his creditor, then, then that's it. He'd have no more rights and no more obligations to them anymore. But, but that's not what happened. There's no certificate of divorce. There's no creditor. Israel is in exile simply because of their sin. They were sent away not because God's divorced them or sold them, but purely because they just kept on breaking his law. The second half of verse 1. Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgression, your mother was sent away. But this is not final. The exile was not the end. See, if their sins were dealt with then they, and their transgressions removed, then they would be able to come back. If only they would turn from sin and respond to God properly, he would, they could return. But they didn't do it. Not one of them was, was good enough to do it, for not one of them was truly listening to God. Not one of them paying attention truly to his voice. And so God asked them, uh, at the beginning of verse 2, When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? So here's the picture. Israel is in sin, in exile, away from God because of her rebellion, and unable to pull herself up by her bootstraps and, and save herself. But friends, that's the picture of the bigger humanity too, isn't it? Uh, the New Testament tells us that all of us have sinned. Uh, quoting other parts of the Old Testament, it affirms there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. None of us truly pays attention to God's voice. Humanity has rebelled, and we're all part of it. And not one of us is, is good enough to get ourselves out of the problem, let alone anyone else. The only way that Israel could get out of her sin problem was if God rescued her. And the only way that humanity can get out of our sin problem is if God rescues us. And what God wanted Israel to know was that He could do it for them. He's the one who can save Israel from the exile. He's the mighty one. He made. He controls everything. See in verse 2 and 3. Second half of verse 2. By a mere rebuke I draw out the sea, I turn rivers into a desert. The fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. Israel would remember that, that God the Creator had shown this power back in the Exodus. A thousand years beforehand. He had done these great and mighty miracles to save his people from slavery in Egypt. He turned the Nile River into blood so the fish stank. He brought darkness of the land of Egypt in the middle of the day. He dried the Red Sea for the people to walk across. He did all kinds of great and powerful miracles for his people. And he said to Israel, I can do it again. The God who saved his people from slavery in Egypt could save his people 
from exile in Babylon. Israel is not beyond redemption because God is powerful. God remembers His promises. I wonder if we ever think that someone is beyond redemption. Do you ever think of people and say, oh no, they couldn't possibly be saved. Do you ever think of ourselves and think, no look, we're too bad. So awful that God couldn't possibly be, be interested in us. Or when we look at the world and we see all the sin and all the way we treat each other and we ever think, no, this is, this is too much. There is no hope for our world. The world is beyond redemption. Well, friends, Israel was not beyond redemption. And neither are we. Not because we're not so bad after all. Not because our situation is not dire. Not because sin is not serious. But because God is powerful. And God remembers his promises. But how would Israel, and indeed humanity, be redeemed from the exile? How would they and the rest of us be saved from the consequences of our sins? Now, we know from Isaiah 49, which we looked at last week, that it will be through the work of the servant. And so here in, in verses 4 to 9, we finally got to the start of our third sermon, servant song. Isaiah lets us listen to that servant again. And here we're going to see that the servant can do it because he is very different. He's different from Israel. He's different from the rest of humanity. Because the servant is the one who listens and obeys. Verses 4 and 5. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. To know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. See, servant is someone who is being taught by God. He's someone who is instructed, who is discipled by Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. He listens to God's word so he can, he can speak it to others. He has an instructed tongue. Like Jesus said in uh, uh, John 12, verse 49 to 50, he said, I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how I say it. I know his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That's the attitude of the servant, isn't it? Jesus listens to his Father. He's able to speak God's word. And the word he speaks, verse 4 again, is a word for those who are weary. The servant listens to hear God's word, to speak it to those who are weary. And so he knows what the weary need to hear. See, the people in exile, they must have been weary. Tired of being in a place so far from home. Slaving away in a foreign land like, like their ancestors in Egypt. And the words of the servant were words that would sustain them, lift them up. Give them hope that one day their trials will be over. One day they will return. And friends, the world is indeed weary. We're tired of life outside the garden. Being away from our Creator, that's, that's a burdensome thing. Not easy. God has put a curse on the world to make it that way. And so there is frustration, there is conflict, there is pain. And that is exhausting. 
But the servant says there is a rest that is coming. That rest of perfect relationship with God and each other and, and the environment around us. With the new heaven and new earth. It's a rest that we enter into by the invitation of the servant. And so the servant has a message for the weary. He says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The servant listens to God's word and speaks it to the weary. But he doesn't just listen to God's word so he can speak it to other people. He listens so that he too can obey it. And so he says from the second half of verse 4, he says, He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. See, unlike Israel, the servant is attentive to God's voice. When God called, remember, no one in Israel, ah, listen to him, but, but not so with the servant. Unlike anyone in Israel, in fact, unlike anyone in humanity, the, the servant is not rebellious. He's, he exemplifies what it means to be righteous. Listen to God's voice and obey it. And that's what living a righteous life is meant to be, isn't it? Listening to God's voice and obeying it. In the end, that's all God really requires us human beings to do. That's how we're to relate to him. That's If we love him, we will treat him properly as God, and treating properly as God means listening to his word and obeying him. There's not a lot to it, it's just that we don't do it. Abraham and Eve, eh, Abraham, Adam and Eve, didn't do it in the garden. Uh, that was their sin, that's, that's why they got kicked out. Israel didn't do it in the land. That was their sin. That's why they got kicked down. But the servant does. The sovereign Lord opens his ears to listen. Has not been rebellious. He's gone all the way in obedience. He listens to the word of God and obeys him. Now it's easy to say, listen to the word of God and obey it. Uh, sounds so, so, so simple. And yet we know... But it isn't. In fact, it can be costly, can't it? Obeying God is not always easy. In a world that's full of sin and rebellion, that means going against the tide. It means there's a price to pay. And that certainly was the case with the servant. His obedience was very costly. He was willing to, to put up with some terrible things in order to be obedient. And we see some of them in verse 6. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And when Jesus came as a servant, that's, that's exactly what happened to him. He was beaten and flogged and mocked and spit upon, despised, rejected. And instead of calling down a battalion of angels to come and destroy those who were doing this awful thing and Instead of calling out fire from heaven to, to punish those who are being so rude to the Son of God, or even just showing His glory and shocking them into submission, he, he just took it on. Quietly. Because he knew that that was what his father wanted him to do. He'd heard God's voice and obeyed it. And because he was obeying God's word, no matter what he went through, 
No matter what he suffered, no matter what humiliation he faced, he knew that in the end he would be vindicated. In the end he would be shown to be right. In the end, the servant would be rewarded. And so he says in verse 7, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and know that I will not be put to shame. Now when the servant says he will set his face like flint, it doesn't mean he wants to look like this. Uh, yeah, if you want to do that to your face, and you know you need the help of a plastic surgeon like Victor or something like that, right? um, though I don't know why you would. Um, Flint is <laughs> Flint is actually what? It's a hard rock, isn't it? Now, so when the servant says he he sets his face like flint, it says he's determined. His face like hard rock can't penetrate it. He brace himself. He won't turn back. In spite of the suffering, in spite of disappointment, in spite of pain, he's determined to persevere. He'll be strong-minded, resolute, dogged in his determination to obey God, no matter what the cost, because he knows that that is the ultimate way to triumph. In the New Testament, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, or, or actually literally, it says, he literally he strengthened his face to travel to Jerusalem when the time was right. He was determined to go to the place where he knew he would be mocked and scorned and tortured and killed because he knew that was what his father wanted him to do. He knew that it was his father's will that he should suffer and die, that, that he would be crucified and, and on the cross bear the sins of many. That he would take our punishment for our rebellion. Because you see, that great and mighty miracle that was needed to redeem Israel, and indeed to redeem the world from, from sin and rebellion, would in fact be his death. That is the way that Israel and the world would be rescued from the consequences of their rebellion. It's, it's just through his suffering and his pain. He would be the one who would deal with the problem of sin by bearing our sins in his body on the cross. By taking our curse and our punishment in himself and making it possible for, for sinners like us to be forgiven. Jesus knew that that was what his father wanted him to do and he willingly did it. Obedient to death, even death on the cross. Knowing that he would be vindicated in the end. Verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment, and moths will eat them up. See, the servant knows that if he listens to God's word and obeys it, then he is in the right. If he obeys God, there is no charge that anyone can lay against him. For the judgment of a human court is only provisional. God is the ultimate judge. And if God is going to vindicate him, God is going to help him if he's on God's side, then there's no condemnation for him. That's why he can afford to let people mock him now. 
That's why he can afford to let people torture him now. That's why he can afford to... You see, he knows that God will reverse their decision. The tables will be turned. He will be vindicated in the end. All he has to do is, is trust and obey. The Apostle Peter wrote this about Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Well, friends, we know what happened, don't we? Not only did he die, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead. He overturned the decision of the human court, which, which unjustly condemned him and exalted him to, as Lord and King of all. And gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And he made him the judge, the one who will come back at the end of the age to judge everyone, including the very people who mocked him and killed him in the first place. That Jesus was indeed vindicated. The servant was right. Listening to God's word and obeying him is indeed the best way to live. Friends, if we follow Jesus, there will be times that we face the same fate as the servant. We will be hurt. We will be mocked. We will suffer unjustly. We will have a hard, hard time. The Christian life will not be easy. Because following the servant means listening and obeying, no matter what the cost. Just like that with Jesus, it will cost. It may cost us time and effort and money. We may not have the time or the energy or the means to do some of the things we would otherwise like to do because we're obeying the servant. There may be business decisions we make because we're obeying the servant, which means that we earn less profit for our company or less pay for ourselves. It may cost relationships. There will be some relationships we cannot pursue, which otherwise we would like to, because we're following the servant. There may be some relationships we need to break off, because we're following the servant. It may cost family or friends. There may be people who no longer want to associate with us, because we belong to Jesus. Maybe people who hate us, because we don't join with what they do, because we can't, because we, we belong to him. May cost us our freedom, may even cost us our lives. And sometimes when we're paying the costs, we wonder, is it worth it? You sometimes ask yourself, is it really worth it? Is it following Jesus too high, a cost too high to pay? Our friends, look at Jesus. And just like his suffering is a model for our suffering. His vindication is a model for our vindication. God will vindicate you in the end, just like he vindicated Jesus. On the day of judgment, you will be shown to have been right. It's the right decision. You will be rewarded. Everything will work out in the end. That's what God says. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Becoming like Jesus, that's the goal. You keep on trusting him. You've seen it happen before in the person of the servant. Seen how he suffered but was vindicated. 
So brothers and sisters, keep on keeping on. Keep on listening to God's word and obeying him. Never, never give up. Well, that was the third servant song. Where the servant listens and obeys to God, no matter what the cost, and he knows it's worth it in the end. At the end of each servant song, Isaiah adds a little tailpiece. And this one, he gives us something to consider at the end. Consider about how we approach that exile problem, which he talked about at the beginning of the chapter, in light of the servant in the middle of the chapter. Uh, Verse 10 tells us the right response, and verse 11 tells us the wrong response. The right response for those in exile who obey God and fear, uh, who fear God and obey the servant is to trust God, to rely on Him. Now, you see that in verse 10, though our translation is, uh, obscures that a little bit, because, uh, ha- ha- just have a look at verse 10, the, the part about walking in the dark, let him walk in the dark and, and has no light, the part about walking in the dark and having no light, um, the NIV puts it after the question mark in the second half of the verse. Okay? Apparently it's probably better in the first half of the verse, before the question mark. So it's more like this. Who among you is fearing the Lord and obeying the word of his servant who walks in the dark and has no light? Question mark. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Right? That is, that's the main message Isaiah is wanting to, to, to say to us. Okay? What's, this, what's this thing about walking in the dark? Fearing God, but, but walking in the dark? Well, remember how... Israel was an exile, far from God. And remember how that exile was a picture of the bigger exile of, of humanity as well? Well, in Isaiah, Isaiah often uses darkness as a metaphor for that exile, for that, that alienation. One example is in Isaiah 49 verse 8, where God says, In the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, uh, to restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritance. Verse 9, to say to the captives, come out and those in darkness be free. Okay, the darkness is, there is the people in, in captivity, in exile, away. Or another example, uh, in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 2, which is talking about that universal alienation from God. It says, see darkness covers the earth and, and thick darkness is over the people. So the question he's asking is, if you're part of Israel, Exiled because of sin, in the darkness of the exile, what should you do if you fear God and you want to obey his servant? Or if you're part of humanity in darkness, exiled away from God because of sin, under God's judgment, but you fear God and you want to obey his servant, what do you do? Who among you is fearing the Lord and obeying the word of his servant, who walks in the dark and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You see, the solution to the problem of the exile, the solution to the problem of sin, is not human effort. It's the work of God. We simply have to trust him, rely on him. The only way we can get out of our sin problem is if God rescues us. The only way that we can escape God's judgment is if God does something to save us. And he has done it in the person of his servant. See, remember, 
Jesus died to take our punishment to bring us back to God. He is the one who ended the exile. Not just the exile of Israel from the land, but the bigger exile of humanity from God. By trusting Him, by relying on Him, by faith in Him, we can be completely forgiven. We trust in Jesus as a servant. If we rely on His death to take away our sins, then our relationship with God will be restored. We'll be justified, declared not guilty of sin because Jesus took the guilt in our place. And we will live with him forever as God's people in God's place and under God's blessing and rule once more. And we'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul who echoes these, the words of the servant earlier, Who brings any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Friends, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who trust in him, who rely on his death. On the other hand, Isaiah has dreadful words for those who will not trust God in the darkness. Who won't rely on him and his provision of the servant, but, but instead try to deal with the darkness of the exile in their own way. Verse 11. But now, all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Friends, don't be like the people who try to solve the exile problem in their own way. We can't do it. We can only be saved by trusting, relying on Jesus. And Israelites couldn't bring themselves back from exile in Babylon by themselves. And Israelite, he couldn't somehow or other overpower the Babylonians and, and make his own people free. This wouldn't have been possible. And friends, you and I can't bring ourselves back from the exile of sin any more than an Israelite could bring himself from back from the, the exile in Babylon. You can't do it, I can't do it, no one can. We're unable to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and, and save ourselves. And if we try to bring light to the darkness of sin with our own light, we, we will fail. Like trying to find our way through the desert with a, a little torch. It's not going to work. We cannot take away our own sins. We cannot atone for our own sins. We cannot bring ourselves back from our own exile by, by doing good works or being religious or by prayer or meditation or fasting or ritual or donating money to charity or whatever other things we do. If we want to do it yourself, religion, we end up paying for our own sins and dying our own death. End up facing God's judgment ourselves and lie down in torment. Now, friends, there's no need. The servant has come. He's faced it for us on the cross. He's died for us. He's been vindicated. But we need to stop trying to save ourselves. But instead rely on him. And him alone to save us by, by his servant work there. And having been saved from the exile of sin by, by relying on him alone, then we seek to walk his path. To be people who 
listen to God as he speaks to us in his word so that we can tell it to others but not just so that we can tell it to others but so that we can obey it ourselves be people who dare to listen and obey and even willing to suffer as we do because we know that God will vindicate us too in the end let's pray Our Father, we thank you so much for your servant, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, through his death on the cross, he's purchased us. He has rescued us. He has ended that alienation that we had from you, that exile away from you, and and brought us back into, into relationship with you. Thank you so much for that. Father, we pray that you... Help us, help each one of us here, Lord, to be people who don't who rely on our own goodness or who seek to solve our sin and exile problem ourselves, but, but to trust in him and rely completely on him and what he's done for us on the cross. Thank you, Father, that you have vindicated him and you have raised him from the dead and exalted him as Lord and ruler of all. And Father, we pray that you help us to follow his example, being willing to pay the cost of obedience knowing that, that we too will be vindicated and rise with him in glory. Father, we, uh, we pray that you'll keep us faithful, uh, that we would not turn away. We would not think that the cost is, is too much to bear, uh, but that we would know that our Savior has gone before, uh, that we follow in his footsteps, strengthened by his Spirit. And we look forward to the day when where not only will um, we be in in right relationship with you, uh, but that whole of creation is renewed. uh, And the exile of sin is is truly over. And we stand in your new creation as your people in your place under your blessing and rule forever. Keep us looking forward, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.